Hello again and welcome to another episode of the Irish Mythology Podcast. I'm Stephanie Hearney. And I'm Marcus O'Hishkin. Today we are continuing the story of the wooing of Etain, one of the most famous sagas in Irish mythology. And you can listen to this episode by itself, but if you're new to the podcast, you might want to go back and listen to parts one and two to catch up on what's happened so far. Just to summarise though, the Dagda, one of the gods and king of the fairy mounds known as the She, has a one night stand with the goddess Boan and she becomes pregnant. To hide this transgression from Bowen's husband, Elkmar, the Dagda uses magic to make the passage of nine months appear like a single day. When Angus, their son, is born, the Dagda takes him to be fostered by Midir, where he is brought up not knowing his true heritage until a rival youth spills the beans. Midir takes Angus to see his father, where he demands a she of his own, and the Dagda suggests a ploy to help the young god trick Elkmar out of his. And we take up the story a year after this event. Now, the earliest surviving fragments of this tale come from the 11th century manuscript Lerna but it was most likely first transcribed in the 8th century, making it one of the oldest Irish sagas that has survived to the present day. Now, the earliest written fragments of the Ulster Cycle, and they're the stories involving Cucullin, Queen Maeve, Red Branch Knights, that include Anton Bocunia, otherwise known as the Cattle Raid of Cooley, have their origins in the 7th century. But the likelihood is that both the Ulster Cycle stories and the wooing of Attain go back much further in the oral tradition. We often talk about the difficulty of separating genuine pre-Christian myth from medieval invention, but Anton and the wooing of Attain are most certainly the real deal. Now, we had actually planned to conclude our retelling of this, which is actually the first of three subtales in the saga on this episode, but we would have had to rush through it and it really wouldn't have done it justice. So we are splitting it in two. We'll be releasing the final part next week on the usual platforms, but if you are a patron, you'll get the story part of that episode straight away after we release this one on Patreon. So if you just can't wait to find out what happens next, head over there and for as little as three euro, you can find out how the story pans out. That's www.patreon.com forward slash Irish mythology podcast. And it's really thanks to patrons like Alistair Holland, Peter DeVoost and Wendy Farley that we are able to keep making this show and we'll be giving a shout out to more of you over the coming weeks and months. Speaking of our Patreon, if you're really into the Dagda, you will like the bonus episode we released recently over there. It's called How the Dagda Got His Magic Staff. And along with a retelling of that story, we talk about the staff and other similar objects in world mythology. It's about grief and mourning and bereavement and the intersection of astronomy and myth. And look, if if you want to help us keep making the podcast, but you don't have change to spare, share our episodes, give us a five-star rating and a nice review if you listen on a, on a platform that has that functionality like Apple Podcasts, stuff like that. Anyway, the Dagda does appear in today's episode and though his role is very significant to the plot, it's really Angus that has the lead in this one. It, it's a story of family and the things we do for them and the lengths they will go to to help us and it's also kind of a rite of passage tale as Angus leaves his childhood behind and takes on new responsibilities in young adulthood. And we also get to see how adults react when their children grow up and surpass them. There's a big cast of characters in this one, as well as Angus and the Dagda, we have Midir, Jean Kecht, Elil, who is a 
Chieftain in Ulster, and we finally get to meet Etain. And we've even given Etain some lines here because in the original, she doesn't actually get to say anything in this part of the story, or I think actually in, in the first subtale at all. But we'll come back to all of that after our retelling. The Wooing of Etain, part three, The Wooing of Ulster by Angus. Angus has been a year in the brew by the Boyne, and of course, there is to be a feast. Farmers for miles around have slaughtered cattle in his honour and gathered on the grounds of the brew to offer them up, while others have brought the best of the last days of the harvest. The sorcerers have made poppets to lay at his door, and children sing in his honour. All of the locals give him praise, for this year has been good and prosperous. In the field below, there is a game afoot. Hurling, of course. The usual teams of 150 face off, and when a quarrel breaks out, he chuckles. It reminds him of the fight that led to him finding out about his true heritage. He is the son of the Dagda, father of the gods and king of the Shi, and Bowen, goddess of the river that makes this land fertile. And because of that, he claimed this palace by divine right. It is only a year ago, but he has grown bigger, stronger, and he appears to be a full-grown adult, though he is only eight. He does not lament the brevity of his childhood, he thinks. He remembers it fondly, but revels in his success. With the guidance from afar of his father, mother and foster parents, he has settled quickly into his new role. He looks forward to seeing them all at his feast. His nostalgia is stirred further when fate arranges that the brawl among the youths on the playing field coincides with the arrival of his foster father, Midder the Proud. Midder, ever the diplomat, goes to intercede in the melee just as he had the year before. Unlike the fight between Angus and Tria, however, this one spreads beyond the two who started it. It spirals out from its epicentre until the playing field resembles a battlefield, with Midder in the middle. Midder struggles to pry apart the two boys who initiated the brawl, and he is thrown to the ground. He struggles to get up as scrapping players tumble over him and he appears to be losing his patience. When Midder finally climbs out of the sea of bodies, cruel fate arranges that at that exact moment, a holly branch thrown by one of the belligerents twists through the air straight at him. The holly branch hits Midder straight in the eye with such force it tears his eyeball completely out of its socket. Midger howls in pain. He immediately drops to his knees and scrambles around to find the eye, desperately clawing at the grass beneath him. By some miracle, he finds it before it is trampled and squashed into the clumpy grass. With the eye in hand, he gets up and scrambles to Angus's door, leaving the melee in his wake. It's good to see you, Atcha. Angus calls out. Hmm, if only I could say the same. My eye has been torn out by these gurriers. 
And it was my good eye too. You're just a golden blur before me, Midder replies. Ah, Atcha, don't be worried. Jean Kecht is due here soon. He will fix this, says Angus. Midder points to the puss and blood running from his empty eye socket down a channel where his face is slashed and onto his chin. Look at me, I'm hideous, he wails. Angus rolls his eyes. Would you stop? I'll just go, sobs Midder. God's almighty at you, calm yourself. Look, here's Jean Kecht now, you'll be grand. Oh gods, oh gods, I can't go home looking like this. I may just tear my clothes off and run into the forest and live like the beast I am. Midger slumps onto the ground, sitting upright in a fetal-like position, arms wrapped around his knees. Jean Kecht approaches his two fellow gods, a look of puzzlement on his face. Are you all right, Midger? he asks. Midger just sobs, holds out his right hand and opens it to reveal his eye. Jean Kecht isn't phased. That's nothing. I've reattached more sense to organs and appendages. You'd be surprised what some of you have lopped off. Give it here. It's no use, Midger whimpers. Ah, go on out of that, Jean Kecht replies. Didn't I fix Nuada's arm? And we didn't even have the arm to work with. Midger places the eye in Jean Kecht's outstretched hand. Jean Kecht closes his fist over it, waving his other hand over the closed fist. Jean Kecht chants. I save the dead alive, I cause the blind to see. Against the point of spear, against the holly tree, against bleeding caused by metal or wood, against the burns of fire, let nerves and vessels and sinew weave, I strike out all disease. Whole be that on which my salve goes, I trust the salve my hand excretes, whole be that on which it goes. Jean Kecht opens his fist. The eye has vanished. Midder shudders. His hand goes up to what was only moments before an empty eye socket. The eye has returned to its rightful place. Midder leaps to his feet. I can see! My eye, it's back in the socket. Thank you, Jean Kecht. Thank you. You are welcome of the gift, my friend, replies Jean Kecht. He turns to Angus. Is the father about? He is, Angus replies. It in the main hall, drinking and showing off his staff. Sure, I'll go and see him. I'll talk to you later. Jean Kecht goes into the brew, and Angus turns his attention back to Midger, whose joy seems to have abated, and looks to be somewhat in a huff. What's wrong with you now, Acha? Didn't didn't I tell you Jean Kecht would fix your eye? I've been humiliated, Midger replies. I'm just going to go. Ah, stay. It's my big day. You came all this way and the feast is near prepared, says Angus. No, no, says Midder. I'm going. You'll notice Fumnach isn't here. Yes, but I forgot in all of the commotion. Where is she, Angus asks. We had a row. Suspicious of me as ever. She thinks I'm on the lookout for a second wife. Midder responds. And are you? asks Angus. I am, Midger replies, but I haven't told her. Angus laughs. Look, 
What can I do to get you to stay? Would a gift or two make up for your ordeal on account of you honouring me with your visit? Perhaps, replies Midger. What kind of gift? How about a new chariot? Yours has seen better days. The latest design. I'll talk to Gobnu, Luchtna and Credna, says Angus. A new chariot would be some encouragement to stay. I could be doing with a new cloak to go with it, though, Midger responds. That can be done, replies Angus. Anything for my atcha. Anything, Midger continues. Well, about that second wife, there is a maiden I've had my eye on, my good eye. Tis well I have it back. And you want me to help you woo her, says Angus. I do, says Midger. Etain is her name. She is the daughter of the chief of the Darini in the northeast. Alil is the chief's name and he will not let anyone near her. Will you go and talk to him? Your fame is growing and you'll be welcome. I will, replies Angus. I will go when the celebrations are done and I have recovered from the drinking. Now, come, let us feast with the other gods. The feast goes on for three days and three nights. Angus sleeps for three more. When he is fully rested, he leaves the brew and boards his chariot. Angus travels north, across the River Dee, along the coast, over the mountains of Cooley and Morn. He leaves behind the lush, prosperous lands of Mybray and descends from the mountains into a land of uncleared forest and undrained swamps. The going is hard, and there comes a point where he cannot take his chariot any further, so he makes the last day of travel on foot. It is no trouble to him, and he enjoys the trek. He picks wild flowers, hunts, climbs trees. It has been some time since he has been able to enjoy the world beyond his realm. He is almost disappointed when he reaches his destination, but when he is met at the gates of Gunu, home of Alil, chieftain of the Darini, he stands up straight, puffs out his chest, and acts in the godly way expected of him. Two warriors clad in bronze are there to escort him to the main hall. They bow before him, rise, and lead him across the outer court. Crowds gather looking in awe upon the golden-haired visitor. They pass through another gate, cross the inner court and enter the main hall through a door decorated with yellow flowers. The two warriors bow their heads and take their leave. Before Angus, the heads of the Tua of the Dorini are gathered around a long banqueting table. They rise when he enters. Alil is at the head of the table and at his side is his daughter, Etain. She is indeed beautiful, Angus thinks. Had I seen her before Midder, I would be here to make my own case. Angus Og of the Tuaday, son of the great father and the wise goddess, you honour us here with your presence. To what do we owe this honour? To ask for the hand of your daughter, Etain, in marriage, but not for myself. Angus replies. There are gasps and whispers around the room. 
and Etain's face flushes a bright red that clashes with the darker red of her hair. For who then? asks Alil. Midger of Brila. I can vouch for his honour and his kindness. He is my foster father. All of the things that people admire me for, I owe to him, replies Angus. This Midger, could he not have come himself? asks Alil. He could have done that, says Angus, but he easily becomes tongue-tied when in the presence of such great beauty, he gestures towards Atain. And it is no secret that my reputation has grown beyond my lands, and there are many here within your territory who invoke me and make sacrifices to me. If you, good chieftain, had an ally like me, I'm sure you would put them to good use. And you could very easily have such an ally. Alil turns to Atain. Do you know of this midder he speaks of? I think so, she replies. There is a man who sometimes appears in the outer court. He has a kind face. I thought on several occasions he was about to speak to me, but when I blinked he would vanish. What do you think of this proposal? Alil asks. I am not opposed, she replies. Though he will have to learn to make conversation. I will see that he does that, fair one. Angus interjects. Alil strokes his chin, mulling over the proposal. No, he finally says. Gasps and whispers flood the hall. No, puzzles Angus. No, Etain asks in exclamation. No, says Alil. There is no way I can profit from this. The nobility, power and divinity of your people, of Midder, yourself and your father and mother means that should shame be brought upon my daughter, no redress can be had of ye. I can assure you, Angus responds without hiding his offence, no shame will come to attain among my people. She will share our nobility and power, you will have a share of that. Well, that's all well and good, but I can't grow crops or raise cattle on nobility or godliness, says Alil. Very well, Angus replies. I will pay her honour price up front, so you will profit right now, and you will not have to concern yourself with seeking redress for hypothetical grievances. Name the price, chief. Very well, says Alil. You will clear 12 plains in my land that are under waste, wood and water so that they may be at all times good for grazing cattle and for crops and habitation, for games and assemblies, gatherings and strongholds. And my daughter's weight in gold. No problem, replies Angus. You will have your price. Fantastic, Olil exclaims and turns towards attendants who stand in the shadows at the back of the hall. Bring out the feast for our honoured guest. It was no problem to clear 12 planes, Angus had agreed. But that was a lie. He is not that kind of god. The gold he can pluck from the air with a click of his fingers, but physical labour. He is not a farmer. He is not a woodsman. He is a poet, a lover. He knows of only one way to fulfil this promise. He excuses himself from the table to go out and take some air. While outside, he blows kisses to the air 
and four songbirds immediately land on his shoulders. One by one, he takes the birds on the index finger of his right hand, whispers in their ear and releases them. They fly away to the southwest and are soon out of sight and Angus returns to the feast. It is night when the Dagda arrives. He climbs through the window where Angus sleeps and wakes the young god with a start. Angus rubs his eyes. What is this emergency that requires my presence in the middle of the night then? The Dagda asks. Angus, slightly embarrassed, tells the Dagda of his predicament. The Dagda chuckles. A good old-fashioned land clearance. By gods, it's been a while. Say no more. Go back to sleep. And when you wake in the morning, you will be able to report the job done. To clear 12 planes in one night proves no problem for the Dagda. He clears the first 11 with ease, for it is just a matter of felling trees, draining swamps, and clearing waste ground. He takes great pleasure in the work, for it has been a long time since he has had a task that required only brute strength. He pulls down trees with his bare hands, clears whole forests by blowing winds from his mouth. He moves hills by stomping his feet and shaking the earth. He lifts debris and throws it out to sea, forming a peninsula east of Dunham. When the first light appears on the eastern horizon, 11 plains, good for grazing cattle, good for growing crops, for habitation, for games, and for fortifications, sit where once were forests and hills. My Macha, my Lemna, my Niha, my Tohar, my Nula, my Tekt, my Lee, and my Lena are their names. His final task is a greater challenge. Just south of the Cooley Mountains is a great bay that stretches south to the hills just north of the River Dee. It has long been a place of dread for fishermen and travellers and few dare to traverse its waters. For in the darkness, under the roof of the sea, lives a beast. And it is said that the beast can suck a whole man in armour into its belly with one intake of breath. The Dagda stands at the seashore, grasping his magic staff in both hands. He lifts it high above his head and he plunges it into the sand at the edge of the lapping waves that creep towards him. The waves retreat. Steam rises from the sea and it begins to boil. But Tobin, the beast blasts through the watery canopy, two tiny angry black eyes staring down upon the Dagda from its giant bulbous head eight thick tentacles flapping as it descends upon him. The beast curls its tentacles inwards and it looks like a giant hand with suckers on its fingers is about to grab the Dagda. But at the last second, the Dagda drops and he rolls out of its path. The giant beast impacts upon the sand just as the Dagda rises and once again, with two hands, he lifts his staff above his head and he brings it down, plunging it into the head of his attacker, and he chants. 
Turn thy hollow head. Turn thy ravening body. Turn thy resorbent forehead. Avant. Be gone. He pushes the screeching monster away with his staff, back out to sea, and as it retreats, it sucks up the salty water, leaving a plain in its wake. The Dagda calls it Mertenna, the darkness of the sea, so all will remember how it came to be. That morning, Angus announces the completion of the work to Alil, who has his scouts go out and confirm the matter. Angus presents Olil with the gold he has conjured, and when the scouts return, Etain boards Angus's chariot and they ride south, across plains that were forest and sea when last Angus passed this way. Bit of a kerfuffle there at the start, but Midder was very dramatic, wasn't he? Mark, he was after having his eye gouged out. Like, I'd say you'd be a bit dramatic too. I mean, do you know, in fairness, what the readers at home won't realise is I was upstairs in this very house that we record in one day and I heard this almighty scream downstairs and I thought, oh my God, an intruder has knifed Mark. But when I came downstairs, it transpired that what had happened was he had stubbed his baby toe on a kitchen chair. So, you know... Well, you know, that, that's actually one of the most painful injuries known to man. Not women. Women are fine at stubbed toes, but, you know, I think <laughs> there's something in a man's uh, little toe. It's a vital organ, I think. It's not, anyway, it's not where they keep their cop on, anyway. It's all very on. well, little toe, but this was an eye. It was. <laughs> you know, I think I would have been fine if I was a god, like. Yeah, I mean, I don't know. It's, it sounds traumatic anyway, but at, le- at least he was he was well compensated. He for was. The affair. Yeah. He, he definitely turned it to his advantage. There's an element of, you know, the old compensation claim when somebody is injured on, on your property about it. Um, you remember those billboard ads they used to have about the insurance fraud and there was a fellow with a neck brace on it there. And I think you were, you were, you were being led to believe that this fellow was faking it, you know, and going off on a holiday on your... Uh, insurance premium but anyway I'm imagining uh, one one of those with Mither you know holding it out his eye <laughs> Have you been harmed? Yeah um, Are you saying he did it on purpose? Oh, well maybe he didn't like intend to lose the eye but he did have some very specific demands for his compensation Yeah I suppose he did but look you know if you don't ask you don't get and fair play to him for being able to express his needs so clearly who wouldn't want a new chariot and a cloak if they thought they could get it I mean, it's the third thing that I find a bit strange, I suppose. He wants Angus, to come back to the actual story, he wants Angus to go to where Etain lives and do the wooing on his behalf. And it's a bit like when teenagers do the whole, you know, will you shift my friend thing, rather than doing the talking for themselves. For for the listeners outside of Ireland, shift is a term used for, for kissing, smooching. Yeah, but like in a, in a very... Um... A very tonguey way. <laughs> I was going to say French kissing. Yeah, but yeah. But, um, Trust you to take it down and ask. See, see also having aware. Aware, yeah. yeah that's our meeting. We're in the face meeting. of someone. Yeah. Yeah. But anyway, look at, I suppose Angus has kind of the skills in that regard. He's a god of love in a manner of speaking, but we'll talk about that in a bit more detail later. He, he's a charmer like his dad. And if he was your foster son, you might be tempted to take advantage of that. Now, the whole sequence where he loses the eye and then comes up with his demands, it, it's a bit slapstick. And there are actually elements of that 
you know, in the original manuscript um, version of the story, it's very hard to gauge um, what the tone of these medieval tales was originally meant to be, especially when they are translations, you know, from Old and Middle Irish. So when I was when I was writing that part of it, I was down to a choice between making it incredibly grim or leaning very much into comedy in the moment. Yeah, I suppose it could have gone a bit Lars von Trier in that scene and, and nobody wants that Do you know imagine it this is absolutely wild I for people listening I I'm not one for the cinema generally because I shuffle about I move about too much and, and it drives me mad and, and also I don't like horror films is the other thing but I actually went to see every so often I'll be sitting there and in the middle of nowhere I'll think to myself Jesus Christ I went to see Antichrist in the cinema <laughs> like that will never that will never leave me I don't know I, I, if, if you've never seen Antichrist by Lars von Trier <laughs> like don't is the first thing I would say but I would say you could read the Wikipedia entry but you know maybe have a motillium by, by your side or something in case you get a bit peaky afterwards but anyway to come back to the actual story no one, no one cares for my, my cinematic tendencies <laughs> or leanings Midger's demands are ones that Angus can deliver he thinks but when he goes to get Etain for his foster father, he finds some of her father's demands fall a bit beyond his remit and he has to call on the help of the Dagda. You know, this bit made me think of one of the comedian Tommy Tiernan's stories from his early stand-up stuff. And he was talking about going out with a girl from Inishmore. That's off the coast of Galway, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. This, this girl, she was used to going out with big burly fishermen who were lifting boats from the age of two, as he says. And then he goes... And I used to get blisters pointing. Do you know, so, that's, that kind of reminds me of when I'd say to people about you, I'd be like, oh, Mark, Marcus is great for the podcast, but he hasn't hands to bless himself. That's <laughs> <laughs> ah, so strictly true. Didn't I fix that curtain in there earlier? Oh, jeez. Yeah, well, <laughs> go on. Anyway. <laughs> Drive on. <laughs> so like that, uh, Angus wasn't one for the manual labour, and he gets the Dagda to come up to down and do the work of clearing the planes for him. Now, that description of him clearing the sea from the last one and fighting the octopus, the octopus. That isn't mentioned in The Wooing of Attain itself. The Wooing of Attain just mentions that one of the planes cleared was my Myrtima. Um, and there's a Dinshankus about that place. And in that Dinshankus, it actually... Can you just explain what Dinshankus means for the people who are new listeners? I'm sorry. It's, it's um, Dinshankus are stories and the metrical Dinshankus in particular are poems about how place names occurred and how aspects of the landscape were formed. And in the Dinshankas, it actually explains how the Dagda cleared the plain of Myrtima, which is what we described in the story. Anyway, so Myrtima is situated in modern-day County Louth, the area known as Midlouth. Hi. Exactly, to be precise. (laughs) And uh, this is where the famous hero Cúchulain is later born in the Ulster Cycle. And I think when people think of Cúchulain, they think of this big burly Ulster man with a strong northern accent. Um, but he probably would have had an RD accent, really. He probably would have. Yeah. Actually, there's a nice, uh, if, if you're in that area, there is a nice statue, if I recall correctly. Is it Ferdia dying in the arms of Cúchulain? It is. In the, the middle of a... a spoiler, in... but sure, if you go and see the statue, you'll see it anyway. But sure, people, it's not, it's not a secret, <laughs> like, do you know? <laughs> There's no, no yeah. great secrecy oh in this. Oh my God, Fergie dies. This is like, you know, Titanic the film. Oh, it sinks. What? <laughs> Shocker. Like, yeah, there's a nice statue there. Yeah. Like, sorry. I mean, for people who aren't familiar with that, and I've just, I've probably just destroyed a later episode for you. But look, you'll be grand. There'll be loads of other surprises. It's you'll fine. have forgotten by then. 
Please, God. Yeah. But anyway, go on. Anyway, and actually, I'll post a f- picture of that. I think I put it on the Twitter before, but I'll post a picture of that up on, in the show notes. Just so uh, the visual learners don't forget. Yes. <laughs> anyway, um, the Dagda does what he's asked. He clears the 12 plains that allows this area of the country to develop agriculture and, you know, build towns and stuff. And the other plains mentioned stretch throughout eastern Ulster, counties Armagh, Down and Antrim mainly. Uh, Maglina is in County Down and would have been the area around where Alil's capital, Dunu, uh, which is at modern day Dan Patrick, where St. Patrick and St. Bridget and St. Columbanus are said to be buried. So the cathedral and the graves of those saints are actually meant to be on the hill where the original hill fort is that we visit in today's story. In the original, he also creates 12 rivers, but we left that part out due to time constraints. But what I find most interesting here is that Olil is more concerned about how he could profit from the union of his daughter and a god he's never met than her actual well-being. So it's no wonder she seems willing enough to, to go along with this. The notion of an honour price is a feature of early Irish law and the size of compensation for any kind of injury, whether that was physical or reputational, was based not only on the injury itself, but also on the status of the injured party. As Etain was the daughter of a chieftain, that price would be high and her father sees a chance to, to make a few quid really and improve his land. There's a contrast here between the familial relations Angus has experienced and those Etain is experiencing. We see Angus helping out Midder, who raised him, his Acha, which we mentioned in the last episode on this. This was the intimate form for addressing a foster father. We then see Angus running into trouble completing his task and his biological father, the Dagda, responds to his call for help. So you have this big familial network of mutual aid around Angus, which was how the Tua was actually supposed to work. But Etain, God lover, is only valued by her father in terms of actual wealth. Now, Angus is kind of the star of this part of the story. And we talked a little bit about him in the last episode on this, but we only scratched the surface. We mentioned that he's become associated with the nice things, love, poetry, youth. And we see him here playing the role of what we have come to call a love god. He's off doing the wooing for Midder, though he's mostly actually wooing Etain's father and the tribes of Ulster. Still, this is what is required to make the union of Midder and Etain happen. Now, in Ashling Angus, in English, the dream of Angus, it's the young god himself who falls in love. He dreams of a young woman who he considers the most beautiful in Ireland, and he enlists the help of his family to find her. The Dagda searches for a year, then Bowen searches for a year, and finally Angus's brother, Bowderic, finds her after he searches for a year. There is a catch, however. Every second year, the young woman takes the form of a swan for a whole year. And though Angus finds out where she will be, he has to identify her from among 150 swans. He actually manages to do this. And as the woman will be a swan for the year to come, he turns into a swan himself and they fly away together. And I think that's how you know it's true love. You know, when the person you fancy turns into a swan and you can still pick them out in a crowd of swans. And it's, you know, it's, it's very sweet that Angus will turn himself into a swan too. Like, this is a chunkfula that will do whatever it takes to accommodate the woman he loves. And, you know, I, I'm down with that. There's actually a version of this story in Scottish folklore where the woman in the dream is actually Bridget. Now, that might make you feel a tad uneasy because Bridget is supposedly his sister in Irish mythology. 
But apparently this is not the case in the Scottish folktale. Hopefully not. It's a bit of a Luke and Leia and the Empire Strikes Back. Why is it a Star Wars reference? <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, yeah. another uh, famous love story he is involved in is The Pursuit of Dermot and Grania. Now this one is part of the Fenian Cycle, which is also known as the Ushian Cycle or the Finn Cycle. In it, he's the foster father of the titular Dermot. Now, Dermot is a young warrior of the Fianna, under the leadership of Finn McCool. And like Angus, Dermot is a handsome young fella, which is sort of the problem. It sort of becomes the catalyst for the events that unfold. Now, Finn McCool, leader of the Fianna, getting on in age, is betrothed to a young woman called Grania, who is not that into him at all. And she's not happy to be marrying a man who is older than her father. That's problematic in, in and of itself. But then she claps eyes on Dermot, who she finds absolutely irresistible and threatens him with a geish. Now, it's a kind of a curse, but it's kind of a curse with a choice. So you do this or this happens. His choice is he has to run away with her or he gets the curse. So that's also problematic. But it does seem that he's only actually resisting her lures out of loyalty to Finn. Now, we will cover this story in the future, so we won't give away too much. But eventually Dermot falls in love with Grania and Angus's role in this is sort of as a protector to the young lovers as they flee the pursuit of the Fianna. One of the things that Angus does is uses his cloak of invisibility to hide Grania. And I would love a cloak of invisibility. Like that would, that it sounds shocking handy. I'd love one of those. Imagine walk through the town and you see someone and you're like, oh no. <laughs> Throw on the old cloak. Throw on the old cloak, quick. <laughs> oh, they'll think she's gone into the post office. <laughs> no, I just walked by you. But all, all of these stories do seem to point to Angus being a god of love. But is that how the ancient people of Ireland saw him? Or is that more of a recent invention? Well. We'll tell you. A part of his depiction as a love god is down to choice of stories featuring him that have been reproduced most and a tendency of the main figures of the Irish cultural nationalism of the 19th century to fill in the gaps themselves where the stories were incomplete. In reality, we don't know a lot about how our ancestors categorised individual gods. If Angus was defined by anything, going by the stories, it was youth or youthful vigour. Now, he grows incredibly quickly to young adulthood, but he never progresses beyond that. He remains forever young. So you could probably say that he's the god of chunflas. I've just pictured him in a, in a Canada goose jacket, like, <laughs> and a bag. Yes. <laughs> Go on. Anyway, it's from his youthful nature that all of his other attributes spring. And in that sense, there is a certain amount of truth to the love god reputation he has acquired. It, it's a particularly youthful love and a kind of a naive love. And that's typified by the story in the dream of Angus, where he dreams of the most beautiful woman he could possibly imagine. And against all the odds, he finds her and flies away with her. And look, he's centrally involved in a few love stories, so it's fair enough to give him that association. It's also from his youthful energy that his association with poetry comes from. Hang on a second. I don't remember anything in the old sagas about him being associated with poets. Well, we've talked in previous episodes about the difficulties of separating the original attributes of the gods from medieval invention by Christian writers influenced by classical Latin and Greek literature. But with Angus in particular, there's an extra layer of invention here. The poets and authors of the Gaelic Literary Revival. If you do a search for information about Angus on the internet, 
you will see the same supposed facts repeated again and again and again and again. And one of those is that he's associated with poetry. But there is precious little evidence in the medieval literature to link him with that. And the reason why this association is so widespread is down to the aforementioned literary figures of the 19th and 20th century, 20th even, century, especially the famous or even infamous, notorious weirdo <laughs> who also wrote poetry, W.B. Yeats. If I can find the sound effect that I used when we mentioned Dracula in the sound episode, I'll throw it in there. <laughs> <laughs> Because now WB8, that's a name that sends a shiver up my spine. If you did honours English in the Leaving Cert in Ireland any time up to 1999... It's Methuselah here, go on. <laughs> there's a fair chance you'll have similar feelings towards Yeats. The poetry curriculum back then it was very dated and it was very male and very dead. In fact, um, there was only one living poet on the curriculum and that was Thomas Kinsley, I think. Even Seamus Heaney didn't get a look in. Actually, my English teacher at the time, Kevin Mallon, used to call it the Dead Poets Society because that film was kind of <laughs> current at the time. Well, it wasn't. It was yeah, around that time. Anyway, there were four Irish poets on it. Kinsley, Patrick Kavanagh, Austin Clarke, and of course, W.B. Yeats. And there was this annual panic in trying to figure out if Yeats would come up on the exam. And, you know, you know everybody has their leaving cert. I don't know what, if people in other countries, I assume they do get have their exam nightmare. Apparently it's really common across, around the world to have dreams about being back in school and doing exams and Jungian dream analysis would suggest that it's, it pertains to needing to, to learn something now yeah. in your current life. I would suggest that it, it pertains to PTSD in Ireland yeah, but like yeah. that's I don't know, horses for courses. Because the ones I had now, they've, they've long since stopped or for a while replaced at college exams and I don't have, <laughs> have them at all but um, the ones that I had to do with the leaving cert really revolved around whether Yates showed up on the paper or not. And in a twist of irony, like when I was actually doing the leaving cert, I realised at the last minute researching this episode that there was a hell of a lot more reading up to do on Yates <laughs> than I originally thought. And I had to do this, like, I had to cram. He still haunts me. Anyway, you might remember from a few episodes back that we promised to cancel Yates when this came up. So for everyone for whom, like me, he was a source of anxiety, that moment has arrived and it is closely associated with his literary use of Angus. That's it now. You can cite us. Yeats is cancelled. We've said it here first. Uh, probably the biggest influence on Yeats' poetry is his unrequited, pretty impossible, if you like, for notorious header, Maud Gone. <laughs> when he first meets her, she's doing a line with a French politician called Lucien Milvoy. I've never been sure how to pronounce his surname. Milvoy. Mulvoy, I'm discussing. With whom he later has a daughter called Isolt. They actually, they had a child, they had a first child who died in infancy. And then Maud Gone was very into the occult as, uh, and so were a lot of the people around her. And it was suggested to her that she should go and conceive another child in the tomb where her first dead child was laid to rest. And that hopefully the soul would, would appear in this new baby. Well, whether that actually happened or she did have a second child called Isolt and she wrote a lot of, a lot of, Maud Gone wrote loads of letters about her throughout her life, mainly saying she's really lazy and won't get a job. That's my understanding of it. But anyway, at the end of her relationship with Lucien, Yates proposes to Maud Gone four times and each time she says no. 
And after this, much to Yates' despair, she marries the soldier and Irish Republican, John McBride. They have a child, another famous Republican, Sean McBride. Now, Yeats's intense jealousy of McBride and bitterness about rejection is expressed in poems like No Second Troy, in which he writes the lines, Why should I blame her that she filled my days with misery, or that she would of late have taught to ignorant men most violent ways? I think a, a bit of that story that you actually left out was who suggested she go and conceive the child in the tomb of Ronan, and it was Yates. Oh yeah, sorry, and, that and, was the and, point. And, and, his friend, <laughs> and his friend George Russell, also known as Aide, were mad into the occult. I'll come back to that. Anyway, so later on, McBride Senior takes part in the 1916 Rising, and for his involvement, he is executed by the British state. So Yates eulogises the martyrs of the Rising in his poem Easter 1916. But even now, he can't stop himself taking a swipe at his unrequited love's dead husband. This other man I had dreamed, a drunken, vainglorious lout. He had done the most bitter wrong to some who are near my heart. Yet I number him in the song. He too has resigned his part in the casual comedy. He too has been changed in his turn, transformed utterly. A terrible beauty is born. And now, despite the fact that Maud Gon and McBride were separated at this stage, um, she isn't a bit happy with the verse and she rebukes Yeats for his childishness. Shocker. Yeah. I mean, the man's dead. And, There's and, no like, yeah. don't speak ill of the dead with Yeats. Like, no, <laughs> none no. of that chance. But anyway, despite this, just one year later, he proposes to her again. And of course, she rejects him. What is it they say? God loves a trier, but he, but he hates a chancer, <laughs> you know? Um, so, of course, after this rejection, Yates does what anyone in that situation would do. And wait, check notes. <laughs> Yates, now 52 years of age, proposes to Maud Gons, 27-year-old daughter, Eselt, who, surprise, surprise, also rejects him. Was she actually 27? I think she was younger. Um, I no, she. I think she was, well, maybe, I don't know. I. I... I think she was a little bit younger. Sure? Yeah, but I know, but that was that was a really She was in her 20s, I mean. Well, that was a really really strange thing and she ended up I can't remember who she married now. Um oh god, your man he went off to he was mad into the Nazis and he went and he worked there during Philip Christ alive. It'll come to me. I'll wake up at four o'clock in the morning in bed. <laughs> I can picture him now. Anyway, she married him. And Yates apparently used to say, Oh, you know, Eastwood would ha- she was very conflicted and, you know, she she it really tormented her, you know, whether or not to marry me or not. And like apparently that's nonsense. She had no intention of ever marrying him and thought he was, you know, very strange. And it is also weird because his sort of relationship with her was almost kind of like quite father like in some ways. I have a lot of opinions, very strong opinions on Yeats, as you can tell. But anyway, look, what has all this got to do with Angus? Well, Yeats was obsessed with the young god due to the overemphasis during the Gaelic cultural revival on Angus's amorous aspects, and in particular, his love longing in the dream of Angus. Yeats even wrote his own poetic version of the story, The Song of Wandering Angus. Now, it's 1899 when he publishes that poem. He's 10 years into his obsession with Maud Gone. And it's a, it reminds me, what was that TV program on Netflix? You. Oh, Jesus, yeah. Yeah, it's like that. Mm. Like, uh, <laughs> Yates looking at Maud Gone through the fence, like writing these, writing these poems, uh, roasting her boyfriends. And it's, you know, it's the, that, anyway, 1899, right? It's the same year as his, un, as his second unsuccessful proposal 
The Glimmering Girl, the poem's version of Angus, becomes obsessed with is usually seen as a metaphor for Irish freedom from Britain. But it's also really hard to not see his unrequited love for Maud Gone and a prophecy even of a life of unfulfilled desire in this regard in the final stanza. Though I am old with wandering, through hollow lands and hilly lands, I will find out where she has gone and kiss her lips and take her hands and walk among long dappled grass and pluck till time and times are done the silver apples of the moon the golden apples of the sun. It kind of reminds me a bit of John Keats's lament for unrequited love, La Belle Dame Saint Merci. Oh, what can ail thee, knighted arms, alone and palely loitering? The sedge has withered from the lake, and no birds sing. Do you know, I, that was one of the poems that I studied for my leave insert. Was it, and yeah? Then, yeah, because we used to always, there's one verse in that poem, which I remember now, and we used to say, um, what was it? I met a lady in the mead, well, beautiful, a fairy's child. Her hair was long, her foot was light, and her eyes were wild! <laughs> <laughs> That's how I memorised verses oh, during the leave insert. <laughs> I tell you, if I spent half as much time on reading the old books as I did on the comedy, I'd have been a lot better off. But... <laughs> Is that any wonder young flies are mad having this stuff foisted upon you in school? Like, you think this is normal? <laughs> yeah, patriarchy and yeah. Yates and Keats. <laughs> Yeah, just, they should just get a hobby or something, get over it. There are plenty more fish in the sea. I mean, you know? To, you know, to be honest, though, I kind of envy them in a way. Like, what a great life that all these boys had. Like, John, you know, John, I'll write, I'll write an old poem about fairies and these good looking women. And oh, I don't feel well. Now I'm going to my house in Rome to recoup, <laughs> like recuperate. Like, yeah. Anyway. Although at one point he did go to his house and die. He, he, he's still in his... 20s was it him i had a coming wait a minute he, he which one of them was died surfing that was shelly wasn't it uh, he, i don't know she, i think shelly died surfing keats maybe died of tuberculosis or something and lord byron died of dysentery and they were all in their all in their 20s they were they were a strange collection like of people back to, back to <laughs> going off on a bit of a tangent there yates angus and all of that yeah his obsession with angus is also influenced by the wooing of a tain. However, at the time when he was reading it, there were only fragments of the story available. And the scholars of the medieval sagas, who were around in the 19th century, created a reconstructed version of the story in which a tain leaves Midder for Angus and they run away together. And no doubt Yeats sees himself there in that, you know, and characterization of Angus and sees Midder as Morgan's husband. But um, his interest in the story is actually also heavily influenced by his involvement in occultist groups. And this colours his version of Angus. He's at this stage a member of a group called the Hermetic Order of the Golden Dawn. They're an occult organisation whose precepts are mostly based on very ahistorical interpretations of the ancient Egyptian religion and other esoteric works like the Kabbalah. And people actually usually associate them most with the occultist, the famous occultist Alistair Crowley, who came to dominate the group in its later days, but he actually wasn't one of the founders. Yeats latched on to the mentions of reincarnation in the tale, and he decides that Angus was not only the Irish Eros or Cupid, but he's actually also embodies the magical aspects of Hermes or Mercury. And from there, he makes this leap that Angus is a god of poetic inspiration and esoteric ecstasy. Absolute chancer. He was, yeah. Spoofer. 
Massive spoofer. spoofer. Francis Stewart was the name ah, of who Eastold gone yeah. married. There you are. Yeah. Ian Stewart was his son. He was an artist. He was very good. Anyway, there, there's nothing to say that the gods can't evolve and develop new attributes. And in a sense, Angus did become a god of poetic inspiration because he did inspire the poetry of Yeats and other writers of that era. But the Angus that inspired them was not necessarily the same Angus that our pre-Christian ancestors knew. It wasn't even the Angus of the medieval sagas. Yeats and others of his ilk were projecting their own wishful thinking into the gaps in the manuscript record and coming up with a version of the young god that reflected their own interests, heavily influenced by their knowledge of classical Greek mythology. Now, we could do a whole episode on this stuff alone. I mean, maybe we will. I'd love to. And probably even a series on it. But we are running out of time. So before we go, we just want to make it official. Yates is (laughs) cancelled for his creepy lifelong obsession with Maud Gone, for his even creepier proposal to Isolde, for mangling the figure of Angus into something he wasn't, and the subsequent repetition of the characteristics he gave to him as a fact on the internet. Cancelled, cancelled, cancelled. I tell you, and if if Yates was knocking around today, like, there'd definitely be a movement around him. Like, he'd be a hashtag on Twitter and not for a good good reason. Do you know what I'm saying? So anyway, that's what I have to say on Yates. And also for the trauma inflicted on generations of Leaving Cert students and the proto-incel themes of his poetry, cancelled. Look, look, there are a few of his poems that I like, like... Circus, Animals, Desertion. It's a poem about procrastination. Um, I can see why that appeals se- to you. September 1913, when he had good politics for about five minutes. And, um, <laughs> By mistake. Yeah. <laughs> and um, Sailing to Byzantium. But there's no excuse for all that carry-on that he was up to. But anyway, <clears throat> that is really all we have time for. And in the next episode, we'll wrap up the first subtale and find out what happens when Midder brings his new bride back to Brila and how his first wife, Film not reacts. I'll tell you. Well, we won't tell you. We'll wait. Let you wait and see. <laughs> she reacts all right. So, if you've been enjoying the show so far and you'd like to get early access to that episode, you might consider becoming a patron. The Irish Mythology Podcast will always be free to listen to on the usual podcast platforms, but it isn't free to make. Your financial support can help us keep making it and continue to invest in things like additional recording equipment, books for research, which are stacking up now <laughs> please please for the love of god support our patreon and down the line anyway the ambitious one we want to pay actors and uh, crew union rates to make full cast productions of the sagas you love there are a range of benefits on patreon at different price tiers and from just three euro a month you could get early access story scripts and enhanced show notes while from five euro a month you can get access to occasional bonus episodes we're also working on an audiobook version of the entire saga of the wooing of attain for patrons on the 10 euro tier and above and this will include the second and third subtales that we won't be covering here for a good 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 long while And if you want to keep updated with news about the podcast and other interesting bits of information we come across while we're researching the show, you can find us on Twitter at Irish Mythology P, on Facebook, Irish Mythology Podcast, on Instagram, that's at Irish Mythology, and on the World Wide Web at irishmythologypodcast.ie. And if you're listening, remember on Apple Podcasts or one of those platforms that includes ratings and reviews, and you like the show, give us a five-star rating write a nice review, helps us reach a wider audience. And don't forget to share our podcast with friends and family. 
And look, I'm not biased or anything, right? But if you meet someone in the world and they tell you that their favourite poet is Yeats, they're cancelled. <laughs> Just like him. Good luck. Slán live on Spanky Galeri. See you next time on Irish Mythology Podcast. You have been listening to the Irish Mythology Podcast. Written, presented, and produced by Marcus O'Hishkeen and Stephanie Hearney. Theme music by Damiano Bagoni, Celtic Warrior, on an attribution license.